the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. And a pleasant good afternoon to you and welcome, Northern California. Great to have you on board with us for this Tuesday, June 19th edition of Lifeline. Craig Roberts with you as we are each Monday through Friday from 5 until 7 p.m. addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. Well, today's program, a very special edition of Lifeline. We are on the road again. Today broadcasting live from Abundant Life Christian Fellowship in Mountain View. Very pleased to be here as we have an opportunity to meet a great group of panelists and entertain a very challenging topic today, a topic that, quite frankly, every Christian ought to have top of mind, especially in light of everything that's going on within our church, our society, and our culture today. We'll be live throughout this afternoon, so if you happen to be on the peninsula and don't have any specific plans slated for this Tuesday afternoon, we invite you to come on down and join us here at Abundant Life Christian Fellowship. We're located at 2240 Leghorn Street in Mountain View. Plenty of seating, and so we invite you to come on down and uh, join our in-studio audience. Let's a nice round of applause for our audience today. All right, and before we dive into the topic, let's take a moment to meet all of our special panelists. We have a number of pastors from throughout the San Francisco Bay Area representing a broad diversity of both a culture and background and certainly a religious denomination, but all strongly leaders in the Bay Area body of Christ. We have with us today the senior and founding pastor of Valley Bible Church in Hercules, He has been in Hercules since 1971. He is the founding pastor of Valley Bible Church. He has a Bachelor of Science degree from Western Baptist College, a Master of Divinity from San Francisco Conservative Baptist Theological Seminary. That's a mouthful. And he has his doctorate degree from Dallas Theological Seminary. Please welcome the host of Truth for Today, heard Monday through Friday at 5.30 a.m. for you early risers, and Sundays at 8.30 a.m. on KFAX, the senior pastor of Valley Bible Church. Please welcome Dr. Phil Howard. Also joining our panel today, he pastored in youth ministry for 15 years, becoming then the senior pastor of Grace Bible Church in Redwood City is a graduate of Indiana University of Pennsylvania. Did I get that right, Steve? Indiana University of Pennsylvania. Seems like a mix of states there. He has a degree in criminology and a degree in Bible and pastoral ministry from Christian Heritage College in San Diego. In addition to his duties as senior pastor of Grace Bible Church, he's also the chaplain of the Redwood City Police Department and speaker of Graceful Truth, heard Sunday afternoons at 3.30 p.m. on KFAX. Please welcome the senior pastor of Grace Bible Church of Redwood City, Pastor Stephen Converse. Also with us today, helping to answer the question, can you be a Raiders fan and a Christian? We have with us the gentleman who in 1991 won a full scholarship to play football for the Washington, or sorry, University of Washington Huskies. He went on to become a two-time All-American and a Heisman Trophy candidate, became a first-round draft pick for the Los Angeles Raiders, and then spent six years of his career as a premier NFL running back with, of course, our Oakland Raiders. 2001, God called him from retirement in professional football to become the senior pastor of the Well Christian Community Church in Livermore. He is also the head football coach to this day at Bishop O'Dowd High School in Oakland, California. Please welcome, if you would, the speaker on Times of Refreshing, heard Monday through Friday at 3 p.m. on KFAX, the senior pastor of the Well Christian Community Church in Livermore, Pastor Napoleon Kaufman. And finally, certainly to um, part of this crowd here this afternoon, this gentleman needs no real formal introduction, but I'm going to give it to him anyway because he's a nice guy. 
We are pleased to have with us the senior pastor of our host church, Abundant Life Christian Fellowship. He is a graduate of Philadelphia College of the Bible as well as Talbot School of Theology and has recently been voted one of the top 30 emerging Christian leaders of the country. He served as pastor for preaching and missions at Trinity Grace Church in New York City, and then God called him to God's country. He's written a number of best-selling books, including Letters to a Birmingham Jail and A Cross-Shaped Gospel, and currently serves on the Board of Trustees for Biola University. Please welcome the host of Inspired to Live, heard Monday through Friday at 4.30 p.m. on KFAX, the senior pastor of Abundant Life Christian Fellowship, Pastor Brian Moritz. Pastor Moritz, you've been very gracious in having all of us to your uh, your church here today, so a brief word of greeting, if you would, please. Welcome, welcome, welcome. It is my absolute joy and privilege, Craig, to be able to serve the uh, people of Abundant Life here. I uh, just celebrated two years being here at the church, and it's uh, been a joy for my wife and I and our three teenage boys to be here in the bay. So uh, when I heard about what you were doing, thought we should open up our doors. We are a multi-ethnic church here, and uh, this fits right in line with what we're believing God for. So it's our absolute honor and joy to have you all. And thank you so much for being so gracious. Again, a nice round of applause. As we lead into our topic today, you know, a recent nationwide survey completed by the Barna Research Group determined, and listen to this carefully, determined that only 4% of Americans hold a biblical or Christian worldview. More specifically, of those respondents who identified as either born-again or evangelical believers, the results were a dismal 9%. That means if you're in a room with 100 Christians, only 9 of you believe in the Bible as the basis for a worldview. Now, although most people certainly own a Bible and know some of its content, sadly, this research has uncovered that most Americans today have little, if any, idea how to integrate core biblical principles to form a unified and meaningful response to the challenges and opportunities of life. What does that look like? Well, it deals with every topic you can imagine today, a lot of it that makes the headline news every evening. The issues that we talk about or debate over the water cooler at work or talk about in circles of friends over dinner or or perhaps uh, after Sunday school on a given Sunday morning when we talk about politics. Is God a Republican or a Democrat or does he really care? The topic of immigration certainly is a very hot one that we're dealing with today. Transgenderism, uh, dealing with issues of drug use, legalization of a marijuana as we have here in California, the environment, then other topics like abortion or God's design for marriage. Ultimately, We've also seen another big struggle, and that is the arena of dealing with race in our nation today. Martin Luther King made the observation many, many years ago that America was no more divided than she is at 11 o'clock Sunday morning. While I know that certainly is not true for many of the churches that are represented by the gentleman on our dais today, and certainly not true of many of the churches in the San Francisco Bay Area, Nevertheless, though, it's clear to see that the issue of race is one that continues to divide us. So all of these topics and more go into that bigger question of what exactly is a Christian worldview, why do I need one, how do I get one, and then what do I do with it once I've developed it? Let me start first, if I can, with Pastor Napoleon Kaufman on this broader question, Pastor Kaufman. Christian worldview. So we're looking at what the Bible has to say, God's direction on many of the topics I just touched on a moment ago, the hot bay issues of today, even if I've developed a Christian worldview, is it going to make any difference? And if so, why so? Well, I mean, obviously, if, if you're... And when I, when I think about Christian worldview, I think of seeing the world through God's view, seeing the world through, with God's lenses, and, uh, and I think that's important for all of us. You know, it's like um, when it comes to what the world is really about and, 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 and just life in general, are we really getting God's opinion about what we see? And so for me, uh, obviously, when we begin to see things the way that God sees them, then it's going to help us to properly navigate through this life. It's going to help us to have... Uh, in some words, 
in some ways a little bit more joy and peace. It's going to help us to have the right perspective with what we see, but there's no way that we can really begin to see the world the right way without tapping into God, and, and that happens through getting into his word and really getting his perspective on, on things and in life, and, and that's going to help us in life. Pastor Steve Converse, a question for you along those same lines. In addition to helping us get through life, as Pastor Napoleon is suggesting, what about this issue of our witness? A lot of Christians tend to be sort of closet Christians. We're reticent sometimes to be bold in our faith because we think somebody might be embarrassed by it or we don't want to, quote-unquote, force our beliefs on somebody else. But one of that bigger issue of the integration of faith sharing our faith with others, having a bold Christian testimony and Christian worldview. Do the two go hand in hand? I think you have to understand that a, a biblical worldview would be one, as Napoleon said, that sees the world through God's eyes. Um, it's one that's founded, it's rooted in God's truth to us, right? The Bible. You have to start there. If you don't start there, we don't have anywhere else to go. And so when we start with the solid foundation of Scripture as believers, then that opens up the door to uh, speak our faith in a bold way because we know that we're standing on the truth of God. We're not standing on the latest fad in our society or what might be politically correct. And uh, I think as far as evangelism goes, there's no better way to speak truth into people's lives than to share the glorious gospel of Christ, that he came down to this earth, that he died on a cross, that he was raised the third day, that when you come to the end of yourself and you realize that you're a sinner and you need a savior, he's the only option you got. Now, politically, that doesn't, politically correctness doesn't add into that because that doesn't sound politically correct. Are you saying there's only one way to heaven? Yes. But the, the reason I'm saying that is because that's what God's Word says. And so it directly affects the way we evangelize. We don't have to come up with ways to manipulate people's hearts because the Word of God says that we are saved by His grace, that He does that work of transformation in the heart and life of an individual. And we, we are the servants that merely bring the meal to the table. You know, to be honest, the problem with a lot of churches today is they're taking the meal from God's kitchen and they're trying to mess with the meal as they bring it to the table because they feel this might not be too tasty for the people they're delivering it to. And that has even affected our means, the way we evangelize. You know, the gospel is a message that Jesus said very simply, if you want to follow me, what do you have to do? Deny yourself daily. Take up your cross. It's not that gold thing you're wearing around your neck, it's an instrument of death. And then, once you do that, then you can follow me. And it's only by his grace we can do that. Pastor Phil Howard, the statistics coming out from George Barna suggesting that the numbers of Christians that have a Christian worldview are clearly on a steady decline, suggesting that at one time they were much higher than they are today. From your view as a pastor of many years, what do we attribute then, this severe, stunning slippage where even Christians themselves, let alone folks outside that are just familiar with the Judeo-Christian ethic in America, but the evangelical church in specific, what do we attribute then this alarming decline in Christians' understanding, embracing, and living by a Christian worldview? I think that we have, uh, the church could be built today without uh, Bible teaching, Without content, uh, a good band can build the church, maybe good promotion. Uh, content. Timothy, keep the deposit of the faith. Keep the deposit. And so when uh, I've lived through the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, I've lived through a few decades. I know that even when I was running with hoodlums, they knew what the truth was. They knew that certain moral things were wrong, even if they were doing them. But the dictionary is blown up. We don't know what anything is. Everything's lost definition. Everything has 
uh, we don't know what anything means. I tried to talk to a young man the other day, and I said, uh, when are you going to marry that girl? You've been living with her. When are you going to marry her? And he said, what is marriage? And I thought he was messing with me, 27 years old. He said, I don't know what it is. I grew up in a home with many different fathers, this, that. And I finally handed him Kleenex when I started telling him what a biblical marriage looked like. He said, I haven't cried since I was seven. I didn't know that was the template. And so uh, I, I go back to a time a woman came up to me after service and she said, that's the greatest sermon I've ever heard. And I wasn't paying her to say it. And I said, do you know why you said that? She said, no. I said, even in a famine, my cooking is good. You're living in a famine. And it's a famine for the words of God. Pulpits known not for entertaining or just the band. And I play an instrument. I'm not afraid of music. Grew up on it. I grew up on KDIA when it was rhythm and blues. Uh, if you've been in this Bay Area, you remember that day, Bouncing Bill. And uh, uh, it's just the fact that truth is dying in the street. It is absurd to think that you have truth in this culture. So how could you have a right view about anything? But we're a people that say we're not smarter than you. We're not better than you. We just have a divinely revealed dictionary, and that's where we get our definitions. And so I think we got to get young believers out of Starbucks and at least introduce them to the Bible. Pastor Lawrence, let me turn next to you. Is part of this, as we look at the, the slippage that's happened, clearly not just within the church, but society in general, in culture, in institutes of higher learning, sort of the product of changing not only mores but viewpoints. I remember back in the 1960s, the mantra in those days was question authority. Now we fast forward 40, 50 years, the mantra seems to be question everything. And I have to wonder at the end of the day, if people believe in everything, doesn't that ultimately believe mean that they really believe in nothing? Yeah, so I... I honestly think the answer to your question is very simple and complex at the same time. The problem with our culture is a failure on the part of Christians to seriously embrace discipleship. We're just not discipling people. So what the church growth movement did was it, it, it made us concentrate on addition. Let's get more people in, more services, more, 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 more. So we built these wonderfully attractional models, but we didn't do anything with the people who were coming outside of entertaining and babysitting them. you got to feed the beast. When you look in the Bible, when God wanted to change a culture, he did it through discipleship. He did it through multiplication, not addition. So in the Old Testament, he says, I'm going to send you into a secular environment. They're going to be worshiping other gods. Um, so God isn't afraid of secularism. God isn't popping Maylocks up in heaven going, oh, look how bad the bay is. God is saying, of course, I expect unbelievers to do what unbelievers do. Now, here's what I need. I need a band of people who are going to go over there. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, he says, here's how it's going to work. I'm going to disciple and change the culture through God-fearing parents who disciple their kids in the way of the faith. But the problem is the divorce rate in the church is the same as the divorce rate in the culture. So there's been a fundamental breakdown. By the way, African Americans do not have monopoly on failed marriages. Those statistics, every single ethnicity struggles with it. So we failed to disciple there. Only, the latest statistics say only 1% of all Christians have actually made a disciple, have actually produced a reproducing follower of Jesus Christ. So what that means is now I've got a different model of church. Instead of an attractional model, I need to have an equipping model. So that I come to church not to get entertained, but I come to get what I need to be a faithful ambassador of Christ on my street, on my job. You know, tomorrow I'm going to my son's basketball practice. I've been sharing Christ with his two coaches. That's my mission field. And that's how this thing happens. So essentially then we need to see a shift in focus where 
of recent times, it has been largely in numerical growth, and it almost, as you're suggesting, would be the notion that we have exchanged the focus on spiritual growth in favor of numerical growth, thinking that somehow that is a yardstick of success. See, look, the churches in the churches in general in America, we're like embassies. If you've ever been to a foreign nation, my wife and I were in London a couple years ago, and we saw the United States Embassy over there. It's this building with this great gate around it, and it's actually a little bit of America in a foreign place, but it ain't changing England. It's a safe haven for Americans to huddle safely in a foreign nation. There's people who speak like me here. Safe haven. Well, unfortunately, a lot of churches are that way. We're embassies. It's a nice little Christian community. Safe, 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 safe. I've been dealing with nonsense out there in the world. Let me just come safe, 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 safe. Bunch of insider talk. But our culture's not being changed. So we've got to switch from an embassy mentality to a wartime mentality, a huddle mentality, where we huddle to get what we need to put the play in motion against a culture who is against us. Napoleon Kaufman, is there the notion here then, to pick up on what Pastor Loritz is saying, that we have looked at this as the notion that inside of these four walls is where church happens, and the only place that church happens. And when we leave these doors, we go back to our schools, our homes, our factories, our jobs, to do whatever it is we do, but we don't become the church again until we cross that threshold at 1039 or 1059 Sunday morning. Well, you know, it's, uh, I just kind of chuckle when I'm listening to, to uh, Pastor uh, talk about this because the first thing that comes to my mind is, you know, we, we spend so much time te- teaching Christians about life and how to get a better life and how to receive new life, but we haven't spent enough time talking to them about death and how to be an effective Christian, you've got to die to yourself. You've got to die to your wants. You've got to die to everything that, that you thought you wanted to, to be and do and all those things and then accept Christ's life and his life for you. And when we become, when we really love, it, it makes us selfless. When we really find love, our love for God and our love for people, it makes us selfless. It makes us want to now overcome all of our insecurities, our fears, our prides, our wants, our needs. And it causes us to want to extend ourselves and to go out and help somebody else. The problem that we have is, is that uh, we, we're, we're building a bunch of fat cats in the house instead of helping people to have a, a mission mindset. So we like the heart, we gather, but then we scatter. We gather, but then we scatter. Well, in order to scatter and do it effectively, I've got to die to myself. I've got I to be willing to give of myself and not just sit in the pews and, re, and receive. You know, knowledge puffs up. You know, love is what causes us to edify and get out and, and help other people. And I think that's one of the, pro- the problems that we have in church nowadays. It's not hard to draw a crowd. I played in front of... Stadiums full of 100,000 people. I played in two Rose Bowls, 100,000 people twice. It's not hard to gather a crowd. You know, you gather crowds. And churches can gather crowds. But just like Pastor Brian said, do, are we making disciples? And are these disciples really bought into the fact that if you're going to follow Jesus, you've got to die to yourself? It's not just about you. It's about him and it's about the kingdom. And it's about going out and reaching somebody. And then once you've reached them, Helped them get cleaned up. Helped them get, help them get off drugs. Help them go through the process of discipleship so that they, they really become converted. And at the end of the day, precisely to your point, if it's all about simply a numbers game, then we could say that, you know what, based on the average church size in the Bay Area, this church will be considered a mega church compared to others, certainly. You might say, well, in that case, then, if it's a numbers game, Al Davis is a more successful pastor than anybody else in town, right? Yeah, well, well I, I, bless his soul, Al is dead now. But, <laughs> but, but you know what I mean? Absolutely. But, but it's, it's the thing. I mean, I think that's part of what's going on here is that we've got to become selfless instead of selfish. Everything isn't just about your needs, your wants, your desires, and God's this big piggy bank is going to help you do all your stuff. Well, and You've got to find out what he wants. 
There was that famous line, my goodness, 50-something years ago in Jack Kennedy's inauguration. He said, ask not what your country can do for you, but rather ask what you can do for your country. The emergent church movement seems to have emphasized so much this notion of come to Jesus, he'll make you healthier, he'll make you wealthier, give you a better job, a better wife, a better husband, a new car in the driveway. And none of it is about Christ crucified, our offense. It's almost as if we've begun to preach a bloodless gospel. I know some people recoil and think, oh my goodness, the cross. That, that's okay if you wear it around your neck, but don't, let's not talk about the suffering of Christ on the cross. And yet, Dr. Phil Howard, the reality is that we take the blood out, we begin to buy into this notion, as Pastor Kaufman is suggesting, that it's all about me instead of all about him. Amen then maybe it's no wonder that the church today has become very ineffective at addressing a lot of the issues that we're going to be talking about this afternoon because all the power, the fire is gone. Absolutely. It's, uh, uh, you just take the subject. I had to go to seminary before I was ever introduced to who God was. I never studied his attributes, his essence, his nature, his plan. Uh, no, I, I never hardly learned anything in church. You didn't go to church. You went to church to feel, not to learn. And I grew up on that, and I had to go to school and pay tuition to get what I should have been taught in a church. But uh, it's just it's just this whole uh, idea. It, it's hard to try to sell God to people, try to convince them that God is worth it. And most people, who is he? What's his distinctive characteristics? That kind of teaching you, everything's felt needs, felt well, needs. And to your point, maybe part of the problem is that for a lot of people, if the closest thing they've ever seen to God or a Christian is what a lot of people pass off as Christians, no wonder it's hard to sell him. People look at that and say, if that's who God is, if that's what Jesus is like, I want nothing to do with him. Well, just being in the vocation of a preacher alone. Uh, it is a rather dangerous vocation. Uh, they've killed many of us in the first century. And then today, every scandal, we're looking to see if there's a preacher involved. And could we please cut out this hero worship of preachers and get them to God? God, uh, yes. all, you know, that I, that's one thing I think Starting a church with a bunch of hippie kids, I didn't have to prove that I was somebody else. I grew up in the neighborhood, and I started out. The biggest center in the place is me. I grew up on these streets. I'm not here to convince you I'm the holiest man in town. Because Paul said, when I come to town, 1 Timothy 1, I'm a living example of mercy and the long-suffering of God. So come, and you won't hear perfect men preach. You'll hear forgiven men preach. Forgiven men who've tasted of the grace of God and can't get over it. And we don't get a commission if we get an extra 100 in here. No, it's just simply the word, the spirit. Does Jesus know how to build a church? Amen. Last I read, he's building it. And he's using some poor tools. Even a donkey bore the Son of God into Jerusalem. So there's room for us. Amen. All right, we're going to pause on that point. If you've just tuned in live on location today, it is Lifeline on the Road. We're talking about what is a Christian worldview. We're here on location at Abundant Life Christian Fellowship, located at 2440 Leghorn Street in Mountain View. We'll be here live until 7 o'clock tonight. So if you're listening to this and you happen to be stuck in traffic on the 101 or the 280, hey, why don't you make the cross over and come on down to Abundant Life Christian Fellowship. We invite you to be a part of our studio audience. Okay, here at 534, we're a bit late, so let's get caught up on a little bit of traffic. Head over to the KFAX Traffic Center. We'll say good afternoon to Michael Bennett. Michael, how are we doing out there? 
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, we are back, and thank you so much for uh, hanging around through the break as we continue on this special Tuesday edition of Lifeline. Live on location today from Abundant Life Christian Fellowship. We invite you to come on down. If you can join us tonight, you're certainly welcome. We'll be here live until 7 o'clock and entertaining comments and questions for our panel, certainly along with our callers and uh, diving into this topic of what is a Christian worldview? Why do I need one? How do I get one? Once I have it, how can it be used to impact my sphere of influence? Abundant Life Christian Fellowship, located at 2440 Leghorn Street in Mountain View. You can check out information, by the way, online at alcf.net. Great uh, group of panelists with us here this afternoon. We have the senior pastor of Valley Bible Church in Hercules, Dr. Phil Howard, host of Truth for Today. Pastor Napoleon Kaufman from the Well Christian Community in Livermore, host of Times of Refreshing. Of course, uh, Stephen Converse, senior pastor at Grace Bible Church in Redwood City, host of Graceful Truth, and our host pastor, the senior pastor of Abundant Life Christian Fellowship and speaker on Inspired to Live, Pastor Brian Loritz. Gentlemen, let's come back to this topic. We've been dealing with the issue of some of the challenges faced by the church, and some of it I think we've heard talked about a weakness in, in, in dealing with the tough issues from the pulpit, focusing more on how to feel better and what Christianity can do for us as opposed to what we should be doing for the Lord and, and understanding the importance of, of what it means to serve Jesus Christ. Uh, also the notion of a little bit of, um, shall we say, biblical illiteracy that perhaps has, has crept into the church. In, in some of the arenas in which this Christian worldview seems to be failing us, certainly dives into one of the big hot topics that we're dealing with today, and, and that has been the matter of race relations. And I want to touch on this for a few moments here with our group of panelists, because it's, it's a vital topic that if we as the church can't get along uh, here on earth, um, what does that say to those on the outside looking in? Certainly we know that heaven is, is going to be uh, cross-cultural, cross-ethnic, cross-denominational. In fact, at the end of the day, I think the only people that are going to be in heaven will be those that have been washed of the blood of the Lamb. Nobody's going to stop you. At, amen? Nobody's going to stop you at the gate and say, can I see your membership card and have you paid your tithe uh, to the church recently? If not, we're not going to let you in. It doesn't work that way, right? It's all about our relationship with him and what he has done for us. The challenge is that we're looking at a world today that seems to be focusing on so many of our differences. What an amazing impact, and let me start with Pastor Brian Loritz, what an amazing impact we could have on the world if the church to a greater degree, and I realize that there are exceptions including this congregation here, but if the church could do a better job of demonstrating what being colorblind is all about. Um, It might be true that we enjoy a greater degree of diversification here in the San Francisco Bay Area, but we also know in watching the headline news that this country, this society, this experiment called America continues to struggle with the question of race. Today, coincidentally, happens to be um, June the 19th, and this is a significant day on the calendar, certainly within the African-American community, because it was 153 years ago today that the last of the slaves in Texas and the Confederate South were freed. And as much as we mark that date today, you see a little bit of it on the news, but not a lot. Quite frankly, a lot of folks certainly within the white community or Latino community or Asian community know nothing about the significance of this day. And it could be argued, I think, successfully by a lot of African Americans today that say, yeah, and while there's historical significance to a day like this, there are degrees to which the African-American community yet today feels like they are enslaved, maybe not as it was in times of old, but enslaved in the sense that there is cultural, institutional, educational, economic slavery still taking place. I'm wondering what we as the church, in your opinion, Pastor Loritz, can and should be doing to have a greater impact in this area so that the church become greater leaders when it comes to racial reconciliation, much the way as the church did, quite frankly, during the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s. 
Yes, so I would say, um, one, we need more multi-ethnic churches. Uh, right now, the latest statistics, uh, only about 10% of all churches are multi-ethnic. Uh, that is, they reach what sociologists call the 80-20 uh, benchmark. And what that pretty much says is you're only multi-ethnic when no one ethnic group makes up more than 80% of your total population. Now, in order for that to happen, I, I want to offer a different perspective I don't think God calls us to be colorblind. Um, I think I understand what you mean by that word. Paul does say, look, let's not regard anyone according to the flesh. That is, let's not add value or detract value from a person based on their ethnicity. But look, if I understand Psalm 139, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, and that's just not my personality. That's all of me, including my ethnicity. Um, in the Bible, there's ethnic uh, distinction all throughout the Bible. Moses marries a Cushite woman. Uh, Daniel is a Jew in the midst of a Gentile society. In fact, John said, when I looked up into heaven, I saw people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Now, how would you know on sight that there's differences among every nation, tribe, and tongue unless you actually saw color? See, race has so done a number on us in America that we've kind of put it in this category of evil when if there's going to be ethnic differences in heaven, but that's not the focus Jesus is, then that tells me ethnicity is not a fruit of the fall. So the church exists to redeem what the enemy has tried to steal. And so what we've got to do now, thank you for the 10 of you who clapped, is we need to have Jesus in the middle of it all and yet create an environment where we are able to celebrate and lament with people throughout their experiences. And I think the best place to work that out is the multi-ethnic church. So are you suggesting to a degree then that it's not, as you point out, ethnicity is not a fruit of the fall, and I think you're bang on on that observation. We've often tried or seen this push that would suggest we need to be colorblind, we need to ignore our differences, are you suggesting that maybe the, the opposite ought to be true, that instead we should be celebrating, embracing, learning from, and seeing how our differences together make us bigger, broader, stronger? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's exactly what, what I'm saying. So I, I think the church should be a place of comprehensive discipleship, where both my spirit is being discipled, but also my ethnic context is being discipled. In other words, how do I follow Jesus as a Christian who has also been made redemptively black, where I subjugate my blackness to my Jesusness? I don't eradicate it. I don't idolize it. I put it in its proper place. So, for example, you know, when my wife and I were engaged and we were looking for the place we would live after we were married, we were living in Southern California at the time. And I, as a black man, go to this one apartment that happens to be owned by this white lady. And the white lady says, I said, well, well, how much do I need to give you up front? I love the apartment. She looks at me and she says, I need six months rent up front. And I say to myself, that's strange. So my wife, who happens to be half Irish and half Mexican, all fine, by the way, um, I, I said, you know what? Why don't you go back to the same apartment, talk to the same lady without me? I want to know what this lady would tell you. So she goes back, and the lady tells her, just give me first and last month rent. Now I'm lamenting and grieving. Where do I go to work that out? I think it's the Church of Jesus Christ. I think brothers and sisters, but if the brothers and sisters in the church subscribe to a colorblind ethic, what are they going to do? They're going to dismiss my experience. So the church should be a place of healing. That's what I believe. Pastor Kaufman, please. You know, I wanted to comment on this because, um, you know, in, in my own personal experience, obviously I've had the privilege of being in in a lot of different situations, stadiums and church and all this stuff. And uh, obviously, I think that racism is a heart condition, and it is a learned behavior. You know, I'm the head football coach um, for Bishop O'Dowd High School, and I have a multi-ethnic team, and these kids, I mean, it's amazing how these kids just love each other. And they're not, these young men are not 
tripping off everybody's color. But the place that I learned racism at and where I saw racism the most was from my grandfather who hated white people and he hated Hispanics. And he would, come, he would come home and he would call them names. And I, I really never understood that because I had so many friends on my football team and at school that were of different ethnicities. And they didn't, I love them. But my experience of, of learning about racism was not just from the opposite color. It was from my own color. And I think that it's important that we, we balance this out because I think that just as uh, African Americans have received racism and it's, we know the, historic, the history of it, all those things, um, we are sadly mistaken if we assume that racism is just a color thing. It's a heart thing. And we just assume that it's just one color that's doing all of the you know, that has all the hatred in their heart because it's not. And uh, like I said, I lived through that. And, and I think it's important that we balance it out because just the same way that a white man can have racism, a black man can, have, can be racist too. A Chinese person can be racist. Every other ethnicity can be racist, and all of it is evil and wicked, and we need Jesus to get it out of all of our hearts. Amen. Amen. And, and, you know, I, I think the interesting thing, too, is that so often it's easy for us to find the flaws in others, back to that notion of, you know, before I want to pull the, uh, the log out of your eye, I need to deal with the, the splinter of mine or vice versa. Uh, the, the idea that sometimes we like to observe in others the thing that, quite frankly, we say we dislike about them that actually is the thing that we dislike the most about ourselves. We're just afraid to deal with it. And you, you could look at this from either side. You know, there have been some that have argued, well, things like, uh, you know, liberation theology and, and, and uh, viewpoints of identity politics tend to sort of emphasize all of the differences or tend to want to try to equalize things because there has been a sense of, of injustice and balance for so many years. But at the end of the day, and you touched on this, Pastor Loritz, we end up spending so much time focusing on all of the differences that we don't have time to see any of the things that we hold in common, and it isn't that we should say let's become colorblind that we don't see any of the differences, but recognize that again those differences come together as a whole and make us bigger and stronger. And certainly, as a church, with the capacity to have greater impact. I mean, what does Scripture tell us that they will know us by our love? And if we can't just demonstrate love toward each other in a very intentional way. Um, then clearly they're not going to believe us when we say we love them and God loves them too if we can't even demonstrate the capacity to show that we love each other. Uh, let me turn to Pastor Phil Howard because you're, you're pastoring in an area in Hercules, the, the backyard, so to speak, of Richmond, which is a very ethnically diverse community. It is to many degrees one that faces a lot of socioeconomic challenges as well on this broader topic is is a diversified church something that you set out to do? Does it happen organically? Or is it something that just comes out of the growth of a process of having the right heart toward God? Well, I think the right heart has to be there because they will know if you love them without you even articulating it. If you're playing to a color, if you're trying to be cool, uh, that's so phony that, that it would be read quick. Uh, I grew up in South Richmond uh, with blacks and whites that came here for the war effort. My folks built warships in the 40s, and it was southern, midwestern whites and blacks fleeing the Depression, fleeing the Dust Bowl. We were considered white trash because we were taking California jobs. So they didn't think much more of whites in the neighborhood I grew up. We were the poorer section of town. And I've always been close to the blacks there because we were all in the same. We were living in the projects, government housing, and we had an economic uh, struggle. And as I've seen black friends in our adult years, we both just say, aren't you glad we didn't go to jail? 
<laughs> Aren't you glad we made it out? Aren't you glad that uh, we're alive? Uh, that, that's truthful. But then I got out during white flight because they were destroying all the housing, mainly black today. And it was a great neighborhood until drugs came in. After Vietnam, those troops came back. They had the appetite for drugs. Drug dealers took over the part of town I grew up in. And now it's not safe for anybody. And uh, I think in church life, uh, I always wanted the uh, mix. We had a uh, Mexican man. I always say, you integrated us. A very dark Mexican fellow started coming to our church. And uh, I think we did things that they could identify with. I grew up and I woke up this morning with my mind stayed on Jesus. I grew up on black gospel because as I was a Pentecostal boy that became more conservative, I raised my girls on black gospel because I said, white folks will teach you how to think pretty good hymnology, but I want you to feel music too. So I'm raising you on gospel. And so... Uh, I I knew the differences culturally, and uh, there's a lot of folks come to our church. They think I am black. Uh, So I I don't care. I have seven biracial grandchildren. I have have all this diversity. I'm kind of glad my mom and dad are in heaven. They'd be fainting. Because you learn it from your ancestors. Uh, I I tell a story that... uh, I've often said it. I'm always moved. I came home from school one day uh, with my sister in Richmond, and I looked in my folks' bedroom, and there's a black man in my folks' bed. I'm in third grade. I can't put any moral implications to that. I live in an all-white neighborhood. The blacks went this way. White black folks didn't. This is in Richmond in the 40s. Black people didn't come down. This was the redneck street. You don't go down here. Because you bring all this southern prejudice even to Richmond. Okay. But I look in there, and I see this black man. I I ask my mother. She's there by herself. What is this man doing in your bed? She said, well, that's Brother Brown. And uh, his wife just died. And he was a black pastor in Berkeley that my dad and uncles built his church for him because he was blind. Little Pentecostal church off of Gilman Street, Berkeley. And it said, uh, his daughter lives in L.A. And your dad said, we're going to take care of him until she gets here. So I'm cooking for him. I'm bathing him. And he's got our bed. And Dad and I will sleep on the couch at night because Christianity is bigger than our roots. Christianity is bigger than color. And that I never knew would give me a model for the rest of my life. I don't care what color you are, if you're my brother or my sister in Christ, whether you're saved or not, I better treat you like Jesus. Race has nothing. Is it not? C.S. Lewis says, that pride always feeds off a comparison. You put four men together, it's not good enough that I'm as good as this man. I got to be better. Pride does not settle on being equal. It's got to be better. And that's our pride. Jesus always exalted people, even the weakest in the room, uh, this racism is the heart. It's the pride. Go into Africa and see if blacks can hate blacks. Go to Ireland and see if whites can hate whites. It's the pride of the heart. I'm better than you. It's my human problem. And yet, wait until you have surgeries. And you've got to say, I need that nurse to get me some pain medication. Americans don't think we need anybody. We're self. As long as you got money and education, you're an independent bratty bunch. I don't need anybody. And yet, 
in the human family, we are desperately interdependent regardless of color. We need each other. Amen. You know, one of the thoughts on his point, and I want to have Steve Converse come on, comment on this before we take a time out, and that is the notion that, and Phil, you kind of touched on the idea that, that some of what allowed you to get along in that racially diverse neighborhood was the commonality of the equal suffering. Coming in from the Midwest, the height of the Great Depression, war broke out, a lot of the Liberty ships were built in the Port of Richmond, and so folks from across the country, desperate to find work, came like a magnet to the city of Richmond. And it was a whole variety of colors, as Phil points out. What allowed them to reside side by side and get along together and work in the shipyards together was the equal pain, the equal suffering. And we say, okay, well, there's an example there. But to the broader degree, wow. If we have a problem with race and color, I'm going to suggest that it also is indicative of a problem with our own relationship with God himself. And I say that because... If we can see each other in man's fallen condition, that the heart of man is evil and desperately wicked, that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that no man can be righteous in his own sense of of, of worth or well-being, and we all see the depravity of the heart condition, then we're all in this together. Then suddenly I can be equally compassionate no matter what the background is, because I see you as I see myself held up to the mirror of Jesus Christ as an individual that's in need of salvation, that's in need of a Savior. Yeah, I, I think that, that racism is the result of uh, a, a sinful heart, as uh, the panelists have already said. But I also think that if we have a church, and in the Bay Area, what church is not multi-ethnic, uh, the Bible says that Jesus Christ will build his church. So if I'm a, a white pastor in the middle of Montana, out in the middle of nowhere, and I have an all-white congregation, that doesn't make me any less part of the church than a brother that's pastoring uh, an all-multi-ethnic church in, in, a, in a different part of the world. See, we bought into this lie, Satan is a deceiver. And so we've gone after the whole racism issue with kind of a worldly mindset, thinking somehow we have to fix this. I have a simple message. We're not going to fix it. It's not going to be fixed this side of glory. And so we need to step back and say, the only thing we can do is present the gospel in a loving, compassionate, gracious way to a world that is lost and dying and on its way to hell and watch God transform hearts one at a time. Charles Spurgeon said this, Satan always hates Christian fellowship. In his policy, it is to keep Christians apart. Anything which can divide saints from one another, he delights in. He attaches far more importance to godly intercourse than we do. Since union is strength, he does his best to promote separation. The last time I checked, there was one race, the human race. And we should be willing, as human beings, to celebrate our differences, as our brothers have said here, and and not impugn them as odd or or different. I'm sure that if I I, uh, worshipped in in, in Napoleon's church on a Sunday morning, it'd be a whole lot different than worshiping in, in our church in Redwood City. But that's okay. Amen. That's what the church is. It's made up of people who are broken, people who have reached the end of themselves and cried out to a loving God who offered his own son on a cross to fix this one heart at a time. Pastor Ritz. Uh, yes, Steve, I get the spirit of what you're saying, but I would, I would want to offer a different perspective. We both believe in the gospel, but I would need to unpack what exactly do you mean by the gospel. Because when I understand the gospel, yes, there's the spiritual component, which Paul says to the Corinthians is of first importance. The fact that my sins have separated me from God, that Jesus Christ is God's only provision to reconcile sinful man to a holy God, absolutely. But when Jesus came announcing the kingdom, he always did two things. 
Number one, he says, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. So he called lost people to be found in relationship with God. But secondly, he clothed people. He fed people. So there's the tangible dimensions of the gospel in which Jesus says, look, there's hungry people here. I'm not going to just go, you know what, there's a ton of poor people. We ain't going to solve this thing. He actually said, the poor you always have with you. I need to do some tangible proactive things to go after this in tandem with the Spirit of God working on the hearts of man. So I think the church functioning rightly should go, let's put a full court press in our section of the vineyard. Yes, we can't change hearts. That's God's job. Mm -hmm. But I also don't think we just sit back and go, oh, well, there's this huge broken thing here. We're not going to do anything. So I do think God calls us to tangibly go after things. And I also think some of this stuff is systemic mm-hmm. and it's structural. Like Jim Crow in, in, in racism was a 400-year-old intentional full court press to integrate it in all structures. Mm-hmm. So, for example, I pastored down south in Memphis for 12 years where the Christian community, as a response to legislated integration, white Christians said, um, if we can't start our own alternative white public schools, we'll start our own white Christian schools and price the undesirables out. So what, what do I do with that? That's called sin. That's, I know, yeah, I know but, yeah. but, but do I just sit back and go, man, that's, that's just awful? Let's no. just each one reach their hearts. No, you confront it. I think it was Martin Luther King who said, our lives begin to end, I think I have the quote right, when we become silent about things that matter. Yeah. Is that correct? For too long, I think, the church has been silent on things like this. You know, we viewed our four walls, we huddle together, and then we leave and we come back the next week and we huddle together. And I think the reason... That is true is because Satan has sold us a lie. And the lie is simply this, that outside these four walls, that's the enemy. Don't have anything to do with the enemy. Just huddle together as Christians and everything will be okay. And I hear exactly what you're saying, brother. It's time the church stops viewing the world as the enemy and views them as victims of the enemy. And we put on our spiritual uh, uh, warfare and, and get things done in the name of Christ, in the power of Christ, in the power of the gospel. I'm just acknowledging that racism does exist. To say that it doesn't, you're, you, you would have to be pretty naive. Now, have I, do I come from a background where I've experienced that? No. And I can't even understand some of the issues that our black brothers and sisters have gone through in their upbringing, in their lives. But the one thing I do know is that I can reach out to them in Christ with the gospel. And once they respond affirmatively to the gospel, then I know that we are one in Christ. And we, we need to stop thinking of it as a black and white issue. We have to start thinking of it as an issue that needs to be changed in the hearts of individuals. You know, one thing I think that is uh, we need to be reminded, we talk about racism. There's more than white, black ethnicity. That's right. How do you feel about Asians? I grew up with black people. I feel kindred. But Richmond didn't have many Chinese and all of a sudden, I'm saying, what are they doing in town? <laughs> hey, uh, I, I don't need a Chinese restaurant. I want some gravy and biscuits. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, because I grew up uh, with black people, white people. And hardly no Mexicans, if you can believe it, in the 50s. and rich, We were black and white. And now, you bring in these Mexican people. I had to start all over accepting them. And so I think sometimes we always pose this argument, it's just the white folks and the black folks. How are we doing towards folks? 
no matter the ethnicity. Well, and, have, you know. and this is an issue maybe we can pick up after the break because there's also this bigger looming question regarding the whole matter of immigration in this country today. And it's easy, I've, I've noticed, for folks to move into that comfortable arena of the rule of law, and we can't be a nation unless we're a nation of borders. And as we begin to sort of drill down into our sense of righteousness over protecting the borders, we have no idea what the perspective is in terms of how that is being heard by the Latino community that is simply coming to the United States, albeit illegally, but coming across the border because they recognize this nation as a beacon of hope and opportunity. We'll dive more into this and other topics. Our live pastors panel taking place today at Abundant Life Christian Fellowship, located at 2440 Leghorn Street in Mountain View. We'll be live until 7 o'clock tonight. We invite you to come on down and join us. Right now, we're going to take a brief time out, let you get you updated on some traffic here. We're a bit late, so it's 6.09. Let's see what's happening out there on this Tuesday ride home. Michael Bennett, what's up? Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. 